This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. With me this week are two fantastic human beings, Paul Jaisley. Hello. And Kate Scotchless. Hello. Thank you both for joining me this week. But before we get into the show, I just want to read something that I wrote that we posted on our Patreon. I think it's relevant to this week's episode. Um, right now, there's a lot going on in the U.S., and I don't want to try to speak for black Americans who are protesting against the police and their local governments due to the, due the unceasing series of injustices done to them in their communities over many years. All I can say is, if you want to help, I implore you to listen and educate yourself with the numerous resources out there. Twitter has been an incredible help for me, and while I'm still learning, I've been using the show's account and my personal account to try to promote Black voices and encourage others to inform themselves as well. I compiled a small list on Twitter about this. You can check on, uh, I think it's a sticky post on our Twitter profile. But if you're like me and you wish to be a good ally, please follow Black activists, creators, and people in general. Listen to them and give them the space to speak, not just today, but beyond. If you didn't see already, we posted about how you can help an IRCB will record a 25-minute mini-sode of your choice in exchange for your donation to one of the many great causes out there. Again, there is a link on our Twitter account that has a Google Doc about what you need to do. You just send us out a screenshot of your donation, um, make sure it has a date and time and all that stuff in it, and we'll record a mini-sode of your choice. We've been trying to unlock other creators, um, get them on board to record stuff with us, but right now we've unlocked all the ones that we found. Um, but if you want to record a 25-minute mini-sode with two folks of your choice you know head on over there make a donation to one of those great causes and that would be fantastic um but let's let's get into the show we are here to talk about comic books i am here to ask the question that i ask every single week how have you been how have comic books been let's start with you paul uh mike i honestly have found it kind of difficult to focus on reading comics lately um you know it's uh as you mentioned earlier it's a strange time I want to stay involved, stay educated, and that's eating up a lot mm -hmm. of my bandwidth. So I've been trying to make myself uh, decompress a little bit, unwind for my own sanity. I've gone back and read uh, comics that are comforting to me, which the picks might be strange, but honestly, these are books that were are, um, are comforting, like a, a good home-cooked meal for me. They brought me some comfort recently, so I want to talk about yeah. them. Um, I read Detective Comics number 469 and 470. These are... Comics from way back in 1977, written by Steve Englehart. Uh, DC recently put out a collection of Steve Englehart's Batman stuff from the late 70s. Um, I've read a chunk of this stuff because Steve Englehart wrote the Jokerfish storyline. He wrote a great Hugo Strange story. A lot of those issues I have were had art by uh, Marshall Rogers and Terry Austin. An amazing art duo. Those books look fantastic still. What's interesting about this collection, mm. though, it has some other stuff that I hadn't read, including these issues, which have artwork by Walt Simonson on pencils with inks by Mal Al Milgram and colors by Marshall Rogers. Whoa. These books look incredible. I'd never seen Walt Simonson this early doing Batman, and it's it's a great look. Uh, I was really blown away by how good these comics look. It's a pretty simple story. It's Batman fighting Dr. Phosphorus, who's trying to poison the water supply and kill a bunch of uh, <laughs> Gotham, Gotham citizens, you know, typical stuff. Yeah, yeah. But what's interesting about it is that, you know, Steve Englehart's take on Batman is an attempt to go back to the sort of pulpy roots of the character. That's why he eventually brings back Hugo Strange, you know, Batman's sort of first supervillain. And right, right. there's a lot of detective work, a lot of, you know, an attempt to make the character sort of dark and gritty and the, the world's greatest detective again. And with these issues, it's like you have that. And then Al, uh, Walt Simonson and Al Milgram, their artwork, it's like it's so close to the Adam West, like 
66 TV show in the style. And um, it's an interesting dichotomy between that. So it's a serious story, but it's also like you get that classic 60s Batman, just beat him up stuff. Dark, yeah. Really yeah. Gritty, but yeah. cartoonish? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's the artwork is garish. The colors are like eye searing and bright. And the action scenes are just, you know, what you want from Batman punching dudes really hard. But at the same mm-hmm. time, it does have a more serious sort of adult undertone at, at, while it's working. Really interesting stuff. And again, I think worth checking out just for the artwork. I was blown away just how good. I mean, obviously, Walt Simons is amazing, but him and Al Milgram and Marshall Rogers together, I think that's a fantastic art team. Unfortunately, I can only track down these two issues. I think that's all that they did. So, wow. Wish they would have wow. done more, but good stuff. Where, where did you find them? Did you read this, like, comicsology? It's on Hoopla. So, um, they recently mm-hmm. collected um, Tales of the Batman, the Steve Englehart collection, and went up on Hoopla a couple weeks ago. There's amazing stuff in there. If you haven't read the Jokerfish story, that's a must read, one of the best Joker stories of all time. And the, the Steve Englehart story with uh, the whole saga with Hugo Strange um, is, is fantastic. These are classic legendary Batman stories. So if you haven't read them and you're a Batman fan, get on it. It's easy to find. So. Cool. Very cool. Um, and the other stuff I read, which I, I say might not seem comforting in today's climate, but I read a lot of recent Judge Dredd stuff. And um, <laughs> reading Judge oh, Dredd, in the, reading Judge Dredd in the year 2020 is it's quite a trip. Um, it takes on a pretty different meaning um, and tone. Um, but everyone knows I'm reading a lot of Judge Dredd anyway. But I just decided to read something more recent. So I read the um, first half of the Day of Chaos storyline. Uh, this is from 2010, 2011. It's a big mega epic that was written by John Wagner. Art by a whole slew of people, including Henry Flint, uh, Staz Johnson, and Ben Wishler. Um, this is essentially a sequel of sorts, The Apocalypse War, the story from uh, 77, I think, The Apocalypse War. No, no, no. Apocalypse War is uh, 82. Sorry. Um, and basically, you have a story where Judge Dredd is trying to track down a band of Soviet judges, or not judges, but Soviet citizens who were victims of the Apocalypse War and have come back to Mega City One to uh, get their revenge on Judge Dredd. Um, yeah, and it's just, like I said, it's just comforting to me in a weird way, even though the first chapter in this story features Judge Dredd declaring they need a complete lockdown and show of force against the citizens because there's a lot of anti-judge sentiment going on. So, like oh, I said, it, it reads pretty close to the surface these days, but... Um, huh. <laughs> but but, uh, but there's something about this, and I, Mike, you and I are going to talk about Judge Dredd in a lot more detail very soon, um, so I don't want to give too much yeah, of that away. Yeah. What's interesting about reading this stuff is that, especially John Wagner's take on Dredd, is Dredd is not a good character like dread is even though he's yeah. a titular character he's a bad guy right and how do you make a comic about uh, with a lead character is essentially a villain you know in for lack of a better term mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. idea is you always present a threat that's even worse than dread and even in that sense dread doesn't come out looking good you know um, so the judge system yeah. is presented as complete failure it doesn't work so it's not it's this it's praising Dread's fascist leanings is constantly showing out how it doesn't work because bad shit keeps happening yeah. in Mega City One, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, especially for this story, which, as I said, is a sequel to The Apocalypse War and spoiler alert for a 40 year old comic, at the end of The Apocalypse War, Judge Dread 
commits genocide and destroys East Meg One and kills a billion people. So it's like, how do you have a comic strip with a lead character who does that? And this book is showing the ramifications of those actions. So it really does, mm. it, it's under is underlining the idea of like, yeah, it's fun to watch Judge Dredd do his stuff, but always keeping back your mind that the system that he's upholding is inherently corrupt and fascist, you know? So, yeah. Like I said, reading it in this day and age is pretty interesting. So yeah, I'm finding it very uh, comforting and um, I don't know, intellectually challenging in a way. Right. Well, uh, Kate, what about you? I hope it's not reading about fascist police. (laughs) Um, No, I have been reading a ton of Lock and Key uh, also for a mini-sode for you guys, so I don't want to go too into it, but I've binge read the first three volumes. I'd only, before this, read the first volume and then watched the TV show. And so um, read two and three is new to me and, and have started number four. And that's the series by Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez. That's amazing. And definitely, if you like the show, go read it. And if you've read it and you liked it, go watch the show. They're both fantastic. Um, but the one to talk about today is Book Love, also on Hoopla, because Hoopla is everything. Um, it's art and writing by Debbie Tung. And it's a collection of, it's an OGN. It's a collection of one-page comics about being a book lover. And it's the most, it kind of reminds me of the Sarah Scribbles art, where it's like very expressive black and white line drawings that just capture the emotion of this female main character that's definitely like a self-portrait of the artist um, in her life as she's doing things that are just super relatable, like walking through a area and noticing what books people are reading as they're sitting on benches and um being like that creeper right like as a book lover you're always like oh what, what do you got there um and <laughs> then that, like people, i mean i do that with people with comics so i guess i get it yeah 100 mike um if i see you on the subway i am gonna peek at what that title is yeah yeah exactly and exactly. uh all sorts of other very relatable stuff like she goes into someone's house and notices someone has a fantastic collection on their bookshelf and she's like whose books are these? And they're like, oh, that's actually my roommate's bookshelf. And she's like, I have to meet them immediately. We're going to be best friends. <laughs> so I am enjoying it immensely. And it is a big old thing. So I'm not actually done yet. But I, it has been a very, like Paul was saying, it's difficult to concentrate. And emotions are difficult. So it's like been a very good like sit on the porch. You can't focus, but it's only a page long. Mm-hmm for each little bit and it's uplifting reminding me of my something that i love and that's an escapist love in and of itself too so um it's it's been a good uh decompression type read right now whereas lock and key is not it's all doom and gloom and people are straight up getting murdered Um, (laughs) those keys man those those darn keys that's what the series should have been called it should have those darn (laughs) keys keys. yeah (laughs) so that's me how about you mike oh i so i have been um you know if you follow me on on twitter and in mostly Twitter, because that's the only place I really get out there. Um, I've been very busy um, trying to make sure that I have stepping aside, which is it sounds weird. I've been trying to be invisible on the internet for for a bit. So um, with that, I have been constantly on Twitter. But in those moments where I'm not on Twitter reading things and uh, doing that kind of stuff, I, I did sit down and read some comics 
um comics came out last week so i got slapped in the face with a new book um and i was like how dare you comics how dare you come back um but i did get nailbiter returns number one this is uh joshua williamson uh mike henderson the murderers are back um big old fat reveal in the end of issue one it's fantastic um if you like nailbiter you're gonna like this if you didn't like nailbiter don't even pick this up i'm just gonna straight up say that because you this is quite literally a sequel series that requires you to have read the end of the first volume or first run oh perfect so, just, so a number one that's lying about actually being a good jumping on yeah. point <laughs> i will ne- i mean it's got a different title but at the same time i will never understand why creators do this uh, in general but like you know what fine you know descender ascender why wouldn't you just make it descender volume seven or whatever it should yeah. have been i don't know but because um people buy more number ones and volume ones but i know. would be so mad i get uh, we've yeah, done no, a whole I episode have, about i have this. been that person who paid the money and then was mad you're like all so yeah. many times comics but, do, it, us, do us dirty yeah, and if, if you're someone like me, though, um, who really enjoyed uh, Nailbiter, uh, I think you'll really get a kick out of the twist that they make in this first issue, um, especially the the about halfway through, they, they make a big reveal that I was like, holy shit, this isn't the end of the issue. And then they make an even bigger reveal. So um, I really liked it. I, I highly recommend it. If you're if you want to go and reread all of Nailbiter um, to get caught up, I think this would be a perfect time to do that. Um, Outside of that, though, I did read a book that I was recommended on on Twitter uh, called Contact High. This is by Josh Eckert and James F. Wright. Um, you can go pick this up online. If you search Contact High on Gumroad, um, you'll find it. Otherwise, I'll post a link in the show notes. This is essentially a story about love in a terrible world. Um, it's It has a really cool premise, although it is right now uh, probably the worst book to read where um everyone has to wear a suit around because some disease is out there that uh will ruin all of your skin um so you can't they're like skin to skin contact is just unheard of um everyone wears a suit but the suits that everybody wears is supposed to simulate you know skin to skin contact so people think oh it's just as good as if you had you know skin to skin contact um our main character does not believe that to be true. Um, but there, there's a whole thing about people being pulled into these testing facilities. And if you break the law, you get pulled into a testing facility because you could be exposed to this disease of whatever it is. Um, again, a little tough to read. But at the end, it was a very good story about love and about two people coming together. And um, I highly recommend it if you get a chance to check it out. It's called Contact High. It's fantastic. Cool. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, let's let's talk about comic books that are coming out this week. Yeah, comic books are coming out this week. Uh, they are dropping on June tenth, twenty twenty. What are you both excited for? Um, I'm going to kick it back to you, Kate. I am really jazzed for this uh, OGN that's coming out called Wonder Woman Tempest Tossed, and I saw conflicting sources on when it actually comes out. But I'm so here for it, regardless. And according to my local shop's website, it is coming out. Uh, Wednesday. So that okay. that's what counts. Amazon <laughs> thinks that they'll send it to you right now. So who knows? Um, but it's the reason I'm so excited for it is it's by written by Lori Hulse Anderson, who is an author, a YA author that I absolutely love and will read anything that she writes. And then art is by Layla Duca. And it's oh. a retelling of... Okay, oh. right? hold on. I just right? need a moment to just... Everyone should read Sleepless because her <laughs> art is fucking beautiful. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. continue. So it's it's a retelling of the origin story, um, but for for the current era, and it's uh, with sixteen year old Diana, where she gets picked up, like she goes outside the borders of the Miscreas, like magical borders in the water, swimming out there to save some migrants, 
and becomes like a very much an immigrant migrant story herself going to New York City and being like complete being a completely foreign world and kind of finding her way. And the emphasis is really on her like steadfastness to her principles and compassion versus an emphasis on punching. And so Mm -hmm. it's more of the Diana that I like to see. Um, And it does have the other stuff. She's like fighting crime and stuff in New York City being awesome. But it's very much a story about her relationship to these people she meets and um, trying to help people and trying to figure out who she is and how she fits into the world and stuff like that whole YA vibe that um, can be fun to read. But I think it, it, it is, you know, the quintessential comics thing is like we constantly retell, retell these same few stories. But I oh, think sure. I am very here for the nuance that Lori Hulse Anderson brings to her stories about basically anything she touches. Um, so I I think it'll be great. I am very excited to pick it up. I mean, half that team alone is enough for me to pick it up. So I think I'm going to have to check this out. Yeah. I found out about it from a Book Riot podcast like email, like their sponsored ad thing was for it. And I never click that stuff because I hate banner ads in emails that I get from people. But that one, I was like, oh, shit, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Paul, what about you? What are you excited for this week? Um, I know I'm being incredibly on brand this episode. Um what I've already read and what I'm going to be excited for, but I'm excited for Batman number 92. Mm-hmm. Uh, new Batman comics are in the world. And uh, this is by James Tinney and the fourth with uh, Guillaume March on art. Um, and, you know, ever since Tom King left Batman, it's, I've been sort of back and forth on the book. I like James Tinian um, as a writer, even though he's not really the most exciting writer is has that journeyman sort of quality where it's solid work, even though it might be kind of underwhelming in some sense, but, Sure. Again, talking yeah, about that's my experience too. Talking about comforting comics, I find it very comforting. You know, it's just a solid Batman mm-hmm. story. I do love that this current story he's telling, he's sort of low key, uh, reunited, underworld united. Um, so anyone, anyone out there who's seen the 1966 movie Batman with Adam West, uh, Underworld <laughs> United is the the team up between the Riddler, Joker, Penguin, and Catwoman, who are the main villains in that that movie. And in the story, have them together. It's like, boy, just call them Underworld United because that's what it is. You know, it's the same team. So as a fan of that movie, I really enjoyed that. Um, same thing with Guillaume March's uh, artwork. I, I I like it at times. Other times it's off-putting. It's I go back and forth on it, but more often than not, it's solid. So I guess I'm just excited for new Batman comics, even though they're basically the same Batman comics I like. You know, just solid, uh, well-written Maybe not that exciting, but Bam is going to punch somebody probably, and I'm I'll, I'm in it for that. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a simple man, you know. That's that's what I like. Batman punching dudes. Yeah, I you know what I uh, I respect it. Um, <laughs> I did drop the Batman book, but uh, you know I can understand that that want because sometimes you know X Men books are not that great, but you know what? At the end of the day, someone's going to have some drama, and they're going to have superpowers, and that's yeah. all I'm here for. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but what for me this week? I am excited for Excellence number seven. This is Brandon Thomas with art by Emilio Lopez and Carrie Randolph. Um, this is a continuation of one of the coolest fantasy books that I think Image is putting out. Um, this next arc is going to be dealing with our 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 main character uh, Spencer Dale's taking down the Aegis, the the Overlord kind of uh, organization that controls magic in this world. And I'm here for it. I fucking love this book. I Carrie Randolph's depiction of Spencer is 
one of the coolest looking protagonists I've seen in a fantasy book in a very long time. And I like this mix and mash of modern day story um, with a strong fantasy element. Um, it's mostly just like the magic side. You're not getting like trolls and elves and all that stuff, at least not yet. But okay. um, man, oh man, like I, Kate, I think you and I have a very strong love for what urban fantasy. And I think like this is a, a perfect example of that done in a comic book sense. Um, like, you know, people are living in cities, but it's modern day like America, but yeah. they also have magic. Like it's in particular, um, black folks in this world have magic. And it's it's a I don't want to give it away because the story is superb. Um, but I am very, very excited to see this book coming back because I was very uncertain. I know that there was like a big question mark at the end of issue six about, oh, you know, this book will return. But sometimes when that happens, books just go away. <laughs> yeah. um, and I'm glad to see this book is coming back because it fucking rules. Um, yeah, I highly awesome. recommend it. Yeah, yeah, pick up that first volume because I think you will be very happy with it. Um, yeah, so I guess, you know, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back... We have one of the strangest topics we've had in a long time um, where, uh, you know what? I'm not even going to describe it. You're going to have to wait till after the break. Uh, so we'll be back in just a second. For our show this week, we are talking about something. Uh, we're calling it the comic book time machine. Read a comic that was released the month and year you were born and discuss. So for this week's episode, uh, Paul, Kate, and I all picked books and told everybody, hey, this is what we're going to read. And so we read three issues of very, very, very different <laughs> comic books. Um and I guess what we're going to do is we're going to talk about these in chronological release order so you can know who's older than who. <laughs> Spoilers, I'm baby. Uh, <laughs> Paul, let's, so, let's start with your pick. Such an adorable pick. child. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Let, Paul, let's start with your pick. What was the book that you had to sit down and read? Well, we went all the way back to the uh, month of July in the year 1982 to read The Saga of Swamp Thing, number three. Uh this is very interesting to pick because everyone knows Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. They've sort of re-injuvenated the character, celebrated run that everyone's familiar with. This is before all that. This is way back in 82. This is uh, back when Martin Pascoe, the late Martin Pascoe, who recently passed away last month, uh, was writing the book mm. uh, with the art by Tom Yeats, colors by Tatiana Wood, letters by John Costanza. I feel every DC comic I read for a solid decade has Tatiana Wood on colors and John Costanza on letters. I don't yeah. think they must have been getting a lot of work back then, but anyway, this uh, book was a sort of relaunch or reintroduction to the character Swamp Thing, uh, who was, you know, sort of introduced in the late seventies as more of a horror character. And this book, which I forgot about was actually launched to sort of tie in with the Swamp Thing movie that Wes Craven directed that came out earlier in 1982. <laughs> uh, I was going to ask about that. Yeah. I watched that when I was a kid. I should, really should go back and rewatch it. I remember enjoying the Swamp Thing movie quite a bit. Uh, we'll see if mm -hmm. in the ensuing 38 years it's changed at all, but uh, we'll see. Um, well, I can see this is a very good promo for a movie because it really mm. does feature his bare butt a lot. <laughs> like a, a lot of frames yeah. of that Swamp Butt. So... It, I, um, I did not notice that, but now I'm skimming through it as you, you say see it. Once you see it, like, you can't unsee it. It's everywhere, Mike. <laughs> a lot of swamp butt. There's so much swamp butt in this. And then you're like, damn, I need like live action swamp butt. And they're like, boy, do we have the film for you. 
you know, it's an interesting take on the character. When you when you make a gamble on a comic book character who doesn't wear clothes, you're probably going to see some some butt, and it might be made out of swamp. So, um, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, but yeah, Paul, this is a very very interesting book because I don't think I've read any swamp thing that oh. came from this era. Yeah, um, I, I haven't even. I mean, I own the saga of swamp thing because who does it at this point? Um, but I, I've I've never actually sat down and read any old swamp thing. I've read like the you know the 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 what was who is it scott snyder version of it or was it charles soul um those those editions like from the new 52 but i i I never read any of this old stuff and boy is it wordy i think this (laughs) of all the books took me the longest to read because every page is about four pages of prose Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i do think that that speaks to the character obviously when once alan moore takes over with issue 21 or issue 20 actually um obviously I'm worried it's going to be more verbose than most writers, but even this, it feels more verbose. I just think that's the way comics were written back then. It's just like, yeah, yeah. that was my impression that there were just wordy air, but yeah, this one took the longest. The, the only swampy in my heart is um, the Scott Snyder swamp thing. Okay. And mm-hmm. so that was my comparison point. And yeah, way, way different, <laughs> but I like a com- complete, basically a ba- different comic um, in yeah. character. Like basically the backstory is the same, but otherwise read as a completely different story to me. Um, teenagers are just terrifying. Like, I guess we should go through the premise of this comic. I was right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Say, we should talk about what the wild storyline is in this issue. The, so, but, the, yeah. the premise is fear teenagers. Go ahead. Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons I did pick this issue, I did want to read some pre-Alan Moore Swamp thing because I think it is a different character and it's fun to go back and read that when it is very much a horror comic book, for lack of a better term or better better genre description. But the cover, yeah, yeah. the cover of this issue is Swamp Thing falling out of a moving train car fighting <laughs> punk vampires. I'm like, that seems like my kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. and it's Hell basically yeah. what's, mm-hmm. what's amazing about this book that literally happens on page two. The book starts <laughs> with Swamp Thing riding the rails like a hobo with a small mute telepath question mark child. And um, mm-hmm. all of a sudden these these teenage punk rock vampires show up and try to, you know, uh, bite Swamp Thing. And I'm like, and this is pretty like, much exactly what I want. on you. I don't have blood. I have sap because I'm a plant. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. It, it truly was exactly what I wanted from this comic. A swamp Thing fighting mm-hmm, teenage mm-hmm. punk rock vampires. Uh, the the larger story involved the Swamp Thing ends up in a town that is being overrun by vampires, and uh, he teams up with a family of vampire hunters, um, and uh, things go badly. It doesn't quite work out in the end uh, for them, yeah. right? The, the teenagers get bored. They they exp- explain themselves that they were bored, and when you're bored, the thing to do is turn into a vampire because it seems like a good time and then turn everyone else into a vampire because they look delicious but also just because you want to see what happens like the the big thing about that is it's just like that whole idea of teenagers is just like reckless anarchy monsters is very much where it felt this this landed absolutely absolutely it's funny too because at the end there's a moment where swamp thing is you know ruminating in his head which he does a lot in all of his comics, you know, thinking to himself. Yeah. Because <laughs> well, he can't speak out loud or something. Is that like a thing with Aww. Swamp Thing? I didn't. Well, the, the idea is like he's, t- it's the, 
the latent memories of Alec Holland are in his mind, but he can't quite make his body work to speak normally. So his speaking is very labored. Okay. So there's a lot of pauses. Okay. It's very, he only say a few words at a time. So, um, so that's why I noticed there's so many ellipses in his speech because he's just so slow at talking. But there's oh, a moment I where I did not know this. There's a moment where he's thinking to himself and he says like, oh, there's a, these teenagers are nihilists. They don't care about anything. An entire generation with nothing to care about. It's like this idea of, (laughs) you know, it's, it's the old guy who doesn't understand what punk rock is. It's like, yeah, these kids just hate everything. Yeah. Go figure. So, yeah. um, Well, and then at the very end, the, um, like the little boy is like the lone survivor and he's like take me with you swamp thing and he's like no 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 you're better off in this flooded out town alone (laughs) with no adults no resources no other humans really but you're better off here bye kid i'm gonna go save this other kid she seemed way cooler than you okay here here is the nastiest part about that ending i do want to touch on the punk rockers and i especially love the one guy who's just like i picked up this girl um but the thing that's great is that this little kid's like hey you should take me with me take you with me excuse me take me with you geez oh pete and swamp thing thinks he doesn't say out loud he says stay behind help rebuild it he does not give this kid an answer he just makes him stay put and float away on this roof that they had somehow escaped from no communication is had between these two it's just thought bubbles yeah i definitely read it as him telling the kid no no he clearly is like having a communication with the kid but like it's all thought bubbles huh it's very strange i mean or am i misremembering i think you're right mike i think there's it's, it's tough to tell when he's speaking or just thinking to himself but i do think there's a moment where the kid is trying to you know yeah he's asking like let me come with you and swamp thing basically yeah he thinks to himself like no you should stay back and rebuild this town we should mention that the kid's dad wait no his kid's uncle Tries to murder him yeah the, the reason that the town is flooded is because the uncle who's also a vampire hunter uh, decides to blow up the local dam because vampires are killed yeah. by running water. So he yeah. floods the town yeah. to get rid so of the vampires. Skip to the end, yeah. Um, yeah, the family vampire hunters are dead set on this. Uh, so it's so tragic. So the the uncle the uncle kills his own son and his nephew in the floodwaters after he blows up the dam, trying to, to rid the town of vampires. On top of that, the young boy was looking for the vampires with his mother and they get caught and the mother turns into a vampire. Swamp Thing stabs the kid's mom in front of him because she's a vampire. Yep. As yeah. mom tries <laughs> to kill him. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. right. This is a traumatized child. It's And then Swamp Thing just pieces out because like, well, I got to find this other girl who was in the train that I fell out of, right? Bye. Uh, one yeah, town like, back. If you, if you stuck around and this train kept going, there's no way you catch up. Come on, Swamp Thing. Come on. <laughs> Um, I do want yeah, this. Yeah. The, the twist in the twist in this issue is dark. I'll just say the whole we're gonna blow up the dam and then we throw ourselves off the dam and the kids like dad no and then they just fall like yeah. what the fuck the man kid, the kid so the the son is saying like you have no right to do this to me is like you don't get to choose if I'm gonna commit suicide or not right. It, the dad yeah. is, mm-hmm. and even Swamp Thing calls the dad at one point. He's thinking to himself like, yeah, this dad's caught up in some Van Helsing machismo shit. I'm paraphrasing yeah, yeah. what he said, but um, um, uh-huh. but that, that's literally what happens. Uh, low key, my favorite part of the comic is that the mom and the other kid, um, who something leaves behind, they find the vampires in an arcade, 
And the vampires are sleeping in the pinball machines. And one of the vampires says, like, yeah, these pinball machines look like coffins, don't they? Because that's where they're hiding. I love that. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, Paul, going off of what you said before of this being like a horror book, it makes more sense approaching it as a horror book rather than a superhero book. Because I think like, Kate, you know, I think you and I had the same introduction to Swamp Thing where like it was just like this superhero book that happened to be about Swamp Thing. And that type of mentality changes when you look at something like this. If you try to approach this as a superhero book, it feels really weird. It feels like Swamp Thing did the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, but if you think of it as a horror book and Swamp Thing is just happening across this town run over by fucking vampires, like it makes a little bit more sense about how bleak and and awful things are because this is just one small story in a larger story of, of various motifs of how awful the world is. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think watching through this, I was like, all right, when's Swamp Thing going to save the day? It's like, no, peace, peace in the fuck out of here. <laughs> yeah, it, it is an interesting take on the, the character. I mean, it's... It's almost like I get the vibe from the Incredible Hulk TV show, kind of, where it's just like something rolls into town, helps some people out, then goes on to the next town. It's like that he's on the road, yeah. kind of, yeah, yeah. kind of vibe. Um, uh, very briefly, I want to mention I did like Tom uh, Yeats's artwork. It did remind me of the Rick Veitch stuff because Rick Veitch takes over for artwork when Alan Moore shows up, and they're okay. visually similar enough where it's there's some continuity there. Um, but uh, I like the page layouts a lot. Some of the action sequences, the scene where the dam blows up and the kids are like, or the dad and the kid are like falling to their death is really striking in a weird way. I was and mostly the, and, focused on the swamp butt. <laughs> the swamp butt, sure. <laughs> yeah, understandable. <laughs> and the punk rock vampires look cool. So, I mean, I understand wanting to be a vampire if you get to look like that, wear a leather jacket and have earrings and stuff. It's a, it's a good look. Uh, so. mm-hmm. The volume of words detracts from the art for me. The pages <laughs> okay. are so cluttered. But that is just how comics were back in the day. So I don't know that it's a just criticism of, of it. Yeah, yeah. So much as like I'm I'm used to the art taking much more of the stage. And yeah. I'm glad that comics have evolved in that way. <laughs> yeah, I should yeah. mention, you know, it, it does feel super dense because everything we talked about happens in 16 pages. I mean, they hit the ground running and it doesn't let up um, yeah. because yeah. this yeah. issue also features a backup story. Oh, yeah. About Phantom Stranger. I, I did not read this because okay. I was done reading DC Comics oh. for the night. Um. <laughs> oh, my. You missed a doozy. Yeah. Yeah. This is Phantom Stranger. Tell me about what this was and I'll give you guys a hot take on it. So this is a backup story featuring the Phantom Stranger. It's written by Mike Barr, art by Dan Spiegel. And again, it is strongly in the, you know, sort of um, Silver Age, Bronze Age horror comic tradition where it's sort of a, a morality tale in a weird way, even though it seems completely immoral what happens in the story. Okay, um, okay. Uh, basically there are two sisters, one of whom is very beautiful. One of whom is considered, um, a mousy, I guess they don't come out and call her ugly, but it's implied that she's not as attractive as her sister. And, um, at some point, one of their friends, um, drugs them without their permission. Mm, And then straight up roofied. (laughs) Yep. And then performs a mystic ceremony that switches their souls between the bodies. So yeah, it's a, because it's a, the homely one is kind and she's the one who deserves to be pretty, he says. Right. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so he's yikes. It's mm-hmm. a freaky Friday. It's a freaky Friday scenario. Um, um, but a lot less funny. Um basically the friend and then the phantom stranger shows up and tells the dude, yeah, you shouldn't do this. Uh, but if you do it, be ready for the consequences. Um 
since he can't interfere because he's like the watcher basically for the DC universe. Um, I see. I see. Um, and then what happens of course, is that, uh, the, the kind sister who wasn't as attractive is suddenly now attractive, enjoys all the attention and basically becomes just as snobby and stuck up and rude as her sister. Whereas the sister uh, who was pretty and now isn't sort of realizes. So it's a walk them out in each other's shoes kind of situation, right? I see. I see. But I, I think they're still both unhappy. And then basically the phantom stranger shows up and quote unquote balances the scales again. And then I think it's hard to tell he from last panel. both pretty. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He just kind of says, okay, now you're both pretty since you both learned your lesson. And it's so. Oh, okay. It's so strange. Um, It's very uncomfortable. Um, mm-hmm. And I didn't like it. And I guess that's it. <laughs> okay, well, let's move on to something that I think we all didn't like. Um, <laughs> yep. Which is Cyforce number one. Kate, could you tell us a little bit about this beautiful little book that you picked up for so, us? So two great things emerged into the world in November 1986. One was me. The other was Cyforce. Uh, (laughs) i was like i looked at the wikipedia that was like what came out what started on my in the month of my birth and we'll try this yeah yeah. sorry so the writer is steve perry the art is mike texera and surprising no one i suppose this comic is hella racist um it's published by marvel it's clearly an x-men like wannabe kind of knockoff where the uh the apparent hero possibly of the comic but <clears throat> that they call an indian the whole time which we now know is not cool is this yeah. very caricature native american man and he's gathering all these kids uh who have psionic powers together because they're being hunted by the KGB which they call the Reds or the Red for singular. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and the kids are also gross racial stereotypes, and they're so they're trying to save this girl in particular who's being hunted uh, specifically by these two KGB agents, and um, they ultimately like the Native American man gets killed, and the kids realize they can summon his spirit by all touching his medallion together, and then he's the emerges as the psionic hawk, and then he can take on the big baddie who's a Russian agent that also has the same powers as him. And yeah. so basically they capture the man's soul question mark, but no, it's not great. It's just not yeah. great. Like there's one of the characters' the name book. is he's like African American is like, and his name's Tyrone, and he's constantly playing with a basketball and talking and slang, and mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. it's rough. Yeah, the '80s was a time, and this book ends so abruptly. I thought that the book had like cut off. Yeah, I thought that yeah, like yeah. I was missing pages on the digital copy that I had. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this book is fucking something. Um, I mostly was just like, I can't believe that they created a character so blatantly racist. I like, I can, you can see that Marvel was trying to basically knock off, um, Captain Planet, right? Mm, yeah. 100%. But they, they went about it in the most awful way. Um, I, I think that they, they, there was definitely a, a try for them to say, we need to be more inclusive. We need to include not just white folks in this. Yeah. Totally makes sense. But they um, then just had all white people do it. 
specifically yeah, a white right. men. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, like they're trying to create, you know, a diverse cast, at least inside yeah. the book. Um, but they are just stereotypes. Uh, I mean, even like the thing that got me was this Russian woman just is constantly apologizing and has no makes no choices for herself. No. Um, right. And like she gives in, she's just subservient. And it's just like, what is the what, where does this book go from the this number other one girl so, too it's like obsessed with makeup and yeah. looks and stuff and is yeah so, so paul what were your thoughts on this well, I've, i was actually kind of curious to read this because i knew this was part of marvel's new universe imprint uh which launched in november of 86 and the idea okay. behind the new universe um i think it was it was to celebrate marvel's 25th anniversary essentially the 25th anniversary of the marvel universe basically and the idea was that uh, based the editor, Jim Shooter at Marvel at the time, wanted to create a brand new universe that could be literally be the world outside your, your window. Yeah. So it exists okay. outside of Marvel continuity. And the idea is like the characters aren't really – they're super superheroes, but they're not super powerful. You know, they have kind of more limited mm-hmm. powers. It's supposed to be more grounded, more realistic take on the universe. And all the titles not are – grounded or realistic. The, the powers are crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it, so the new universe uh, was a complete failure, obviously, since no one ever mm-hmm. talks about or mentions it again. Um, Clearly. <laughs> this book is a pretty strong example why. Um, the, I think the problem is like, I understand the idea of like, let's create a shared universe from the ground up. The problem is the Marvel universe was created organically. So you have a built-in sympathy for those characters since you know they have a history. I didn't care about any of these characters. There's no... Yeah reason to they just are kind of there's nothing there. likable about anybody right. that's in this book yeah exactly and 100 yeah. percent. yeah and it's just none of it really works it's trying to be grounded and realistic you know talking about international international relations and you know the kgb and stuff but it's so over the top at the same time that's a weird like dissonance between the intention and the execution and uh, yeah it's just none of it None of it works. And it's so confusing. I had no idea what was happening for most of this book. And like you yeah. said, yeah. it ends so abruptly. What blows my mind is I looked it up and this title ran for 32 issues. I'm like, how in the world did this run with it for that long? Well, Yikes. was this getting I, close to the comic bus though? Like where everything just sold all the time? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, well, that would I be what year that, that would be like early started. 90s, right? When yeah, like so you could pretty much put anything yeah, yeah I, I think this that this was just so I, I'm guessing it was a little bit unique compared to a lot of the other stuff that's on the sh- on the shelf. I yeah. cannot understand. I mean, maybe maybe Captain Planet was really doing like Buko Bucks <laughs> on TV and people were like, This is Captain Planet, but it's a comic book and it's incredibly racist. Comic- um, Captain Planet had comic books. <laughs> yeah, and that, yeah, I, I know that's in my mind I'm thinking Captain Planet is a few years after this. For me, this really felt like Hey, Teen Titans is the most popular comic book. X-Men is the most popular comic book. We got to do teenage superheroes. You know, it really yeah. felt like cashing in on that stuff. Um, yeah, they yeah. even have like a house that they call, what was it? Um, sanctuary. Yeah, yeah the sanctuary. It's very, like the X-Men house, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I was getting like almost like a, a I could I could smell some of the influence from X Men, right? <laughs> like you've got a character that already feels like a Kitty Pride. Yeah. You've got like um, I I don't know. I, I it felt a lot like the X Men, but bad because no <laughs> one's power was clear. We didn't see uh, anybody yeah. like actually using their powers except for you know Hawks. Um, 
And like, I just, there was so little we, we to go did off of. see them using their powers, but it was so weirdly illustrated and disjointed that you don't remember it. But we did. Yeah, like, <laughs> the nerdy kid breaks stuff and then they don't explain what that means. Yeah. Oh, and then like the, the one fuck? kid like can astral project, but in a kind of, like, I don't know. Um, yeah, it the, wasn't great. The weirdest use of the powers was that Hawk, their mentor, uh, he basically forces them to do his will at one point. He even yeah, says he feels guilty part. about doing it. Yeah. It's he very He pushes strange. them with his mind. Yeah. That's called poor writing, right? Like, <laughs> that's yeah. just what it is. That's not even a, like a critique of the story. That's just poor writing. Um, like, you gave your all of the characters no call to action, no reason to care about each other or the situation. Right. Like, half of them are just like, yeah, send that Russian girl back home. Like, <laughs> what the fuck, man? This is the most bizarre book. Like, I feel like, in comparison, the, the, the book that I picked is superb. The book <laughs> Okay, we should we should go to that one because yeah, I let's, also let's, enjoyed that do, one the most. Yeah, so so the book that I picked um, in the year of of the universe, nineteen eighty eight, it's the universal time measurement. Um, <laughs> uh, October was a month of true power and beauty because not only <laughs> was I born, but Green Arrow number ten came out. This is written by Mike Grell with art by Ed Hannigan and Dick Giordano, uh, published by DC. This comic book is essentially. In the middle of another story, we open on like somebody training, um, killing some folks, and then we cut to uh, Green Lantern, um, Green Arrow, basically sure. being the guy. Right. Oh, right. sorry, I was looking at the previous one. Sorry, um, Green Lantern, um, just being <laughs> Green Lantern. Green Arrow, Mike. Sorry, God, I I kept saying Green Lantern I as I was thinking about this. <laughs> sorry, we open on it's. Sorry, it is. <laughs> Oh my gosh, this is the wildest thing. Um, we open on Green Arrow's birthday. Dinah Lance has brought him um, a birthday card and some cake, and he discovers that she's on the pill. Um, right? This is the issue that we all yeah, read yeah, because yeah. I couldn't yeah. fucking believe that was how it opened up. Some 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 dudes in SWAT gear get killed by a woman with arrows. <laughs> um, and as the issue continues on, for some reason, the American government needs Green Arrow to go investigate this woman who has... Um, killed some folks. I think that's like the summary. And so they, they basically say, hey, Green Arrow, go to Hawaii because Japanese people or Japanese groups owned by the Yakuza have been buying up land in Hawaii and we want to know why. We think this person is there um, because she just killed a bunch of people. Why would she leave or why would they leave? Um, so yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Um, but, you know, going from Cyforce from Saga Swamp Thing, um, we can tell that there's definitely been a shift in comic books. What did you guys think of this? This is really interesting because I I know that Mike Grell's take on Green Arrow is a pretty celebrated run on the character, but I've never read any of it. Um, so okay. I, was, I was kind of excited to read some of it. Um, I think what's interesting is that we're talking about 1988. So this is post-Crisis on Infinite Earths. This is crow, uh, post- um, Dark Knight Returns and post Batman Year One, there's very much an influence of those books on this comic. Uh, sure, you know this feels like an attempt to rejuvenate or reintroduce, re um, uh, reboot the character of the Green Arrow, make him more grounded and realistic. There's a lot of references to contemporary politics and geo geopolitics at the time. Um, mm -hmm. There's even a reference. There's an oblique reference to the Iran Contra scandal because that's right at right before all this this book comes out. 
Um, oh, geez, I didn't even catch that. And, and the whole plot is the idea that um, during World War II, the Filipino government had buried a lot of money, the, basically their treasury, underground to hide it from the Japanese invaders. And then uh, this mysterious woman that is being hunted by the Yakuza has a map to where that, that money is. So you're talking right. about you know geopolitics and big issues, uh, not just your standard superheroics. And a lot of the issue is Green Arrow and Diana Lance is going to the zoo to celebrate his birthday. It's such a more, if you want to make a grounded, realistic comic, this does that a lot better than Cyforce, right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, the thing that the thing that really actually hooked me on this book, like I think I might go back and read some fucking Green Arrow. Yeah. Um, yeah. This movie felt like every standard '80s soundtrack. Mm-hmm was playing in the background like the neon colors the shading yeah. like the, they're sing- there's a single panel of just the the philippines in an in a in one of the panels and i was just like what a unique way to talk about something and not just have it over talking heads just to show a map really quick on this yeah. this very uniquely colored map yeah. like so many things about this book really really worked um uh, i was worried like i've never read green arrow in my entire life mm-hmm. um with the exception of the book that Nick uh, mandatorily makes everyone read before you're allowed to talk to him, which is the um, Jeff Lemire um, run that he did. I also browbeaten into reading that by uh, one Nick White. <laughs> yeah. So, but beyond that, like I'd never read anything, especially from the eighties before, you know, Oliver Queen gets rid of the goat goatee and stuff. Like that's the only Oliver Queen that I know is from the fucking Arrow TV Ooh, show. You so could have a handlebar beard. Am I right? It's, it's awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's great. I mean, it, I actually really like it. It fits. It hits so well as an 80s comic um it it looked and felt like a certain era and that i think really sells it for me that it still works what's amazing is you know we were talking about swamp thing being a wordy comic there are so many pages in this comic that have no dialogue right it's just it's just artwork and it looks so good screen scene setting because of that too exactly and it's just a different style of storytelling i think they have more pages to work with they're not trying to cram a bunch of information on it the pages and I got some pretty strong um, Copra vibes. If you've read Michelle Fife's Copra, I yeah, saw yeah. The, a, lot I of, see that. The, a lot of the action sequences, that whole scene where the um, Yakuza assassins are attacking the the woman with the dragon tattoo. Not that one, mm-hmm. but the other, the one in this comic. <laughs> dragon tattoo. Uh, that, that whole sequence just felt like a contemporary Copra comic. It just like the way it was paced, you know, visually not the same because I, you know, it's different art style, but just the pacing of the book was just, I was really blown Mm -hmm. away and it shows how comic book storytelling and visual storytelling changed from 1982 to 1988. It feels light years beyond that Swamp Thing comic, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely. In specific, just to, to note a little bit again on that, that opening sequence that you're talking about, Paul, there is this beautiful, wonderful two page spread, which almost feels like a bond movie or some action spy thriller. It's like here, there be dragons and yep. it it hits so well because the 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 words like you, uh, you have to see it to really understand it but like the words are spaced between the panels in a way that puts a visual beat in your head and i can i can totally feel like how cinematic this comic feels um just from pages like that mm-hmm. and really i think i don't know how else to describe it this this comic truly feels cinematic while also being very much a comic book some of the stuff you couldn't do in film but when they do try to lean on film for i think some of the beats it works superbly Mm -hmm. um yeah i i cannot express how much i actually enjoyed this comic (laughs) i mean coming off of the other two um saga swamp thing like again it's horror cyforce is a whole 
mess of its own. <laughs> yeah. um, but this, I think, feels to me like the more most well-rounded um, issue, even though we came in in the middle of a story arc. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I got enough out of it to be like, yeah, yeah, I could read this. Like if I picked this up at a 7-Eleven in 1988, I would be on board to maybe find those other issues or even just keep reading with issue 11. The, yeah. the visual design of the girl with the dragon tattoo that he's after is so freaking cool that (laughs) that alone gave me that kind of feel where i'm just like okay she's awesome Mm -hmm. i want to know more about her please (laughs) yes can we talk about really quick um dinah lance fighting the guy with the glasses from the fbi or whatever yes yes i love that for multiple pages yeah (laughs) so strange so strange such so, an odd thing and the dude was like into it like it it, it felt like a shitty 80s movie trope yeah where this guy is just like happy to get beat up by a girl because he's kind of impressed but it's also weirdly sexual yeah because it has to be because it's the 80s yep um well, that that moment was just like what the fuck is happening <laughs> we should make a note uh that this book again this is 1988 this is when dc has started doing more prestige format books and by prestige format books i meant books with more pages higher quality paper stock. And usually they didn't have the comics code authority stamp on them. So this book actually oh, was interesting. If you look at the cover actually says it's suggested for mature readers, which makes sense because it's, it's kind of dealing with more mature subject matter. The opening pages feel Oliver, Oliver North, uh, Oliver North, speaking of a grand contra, Ollie Nor- Oliver yeah. Queen uh, talking to Dinah Lance and basically saying, what do you want for your birthday? It's like, oh, same thing I want every year. And it's very hint, hint, you know what I'm talking about, right? There's yeah, a more yeah. adult tone to the book overall, and I think that well, I mean, and he found birth control, so that's very <laughs> right, yeah. So, the, and then it leads into this this whole sequence where this, you know, this guy who's apparently some sort of martial arts expert is impressed by Dinah's skill. So he's like, "Well, how about you and I go in the back and try to show each other some moves, basically, right?" Yeah. And it's yeah, real skis ball shit. It reads very mature and skeezy, and I think that's uh, a sign of the times. Yeah, yeah. Um, but how about that last page with uh, with Green Arrow jumping off yes. the side of his like the fire escape to his building, um, and there's just this beautiful shot of him like kicking his leg out, but in the background his face is in oranges and yellows. <laughs> I this was I loved it. It's not the last page, second to last yeah. page. This was the one issue where I was like, you know, I'm gonna have to read the next one. I actually was excited to keep reading this. I might the have to go back. Only one that I would have read. Start from the rest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't think I'm going to go back, guys, because there's room for exactly one amazing archer in my life, and that is uh, Kate Bishop. Oh, sure. Oh, right, right, right. (laughs) You know, understandable. Absolutely understandable. Um, But yeah, I guess do any any final thoughts on these these issues? I know this is like this is kind of hodgepodge weird thing. Um, I know we read some comics that maybe we wouldn't have normally picked up, and they were um, regrettably odd and bad um but <laughs> like I, I think this, this is a really interesting um experiment and i know it's you know it ties back to the to the month and the year that we were all born but um this is this is really interesting to me to try out some stuff that i don't think i would have ever ever picked yeah, up Yeah, for sure yeah. especially because i didn't start reading comics until like 2013 it'd be fun <laughs> oh, to sure. this. like the year you graduated high school and stuff like that um oh nice yeah i didn't even think about that I, that'd, that'd be interesting too I have, unlike Paul, I do not read old comics for nostalgia. And I basically uh, haven't, if it's, if it's from before 2000, I probably haven't read it other than Mm -hmm. the classics that you get told that you have, you should read. And sometimes Mm -hmm. you do. Um, Yeah. 
So I, yeah, I thought it was a fun exercise. Plus they're cheap when they're old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's also yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting to go back and do this. I love reading old comics. It's no his, no secret there. It's part of the reason I suggested this topic initially. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I love to track how the art form changes and yeah. the style of the comics. You know, yeah, we're reading comics. This is 82 is the direct market is just coming to existence, but a lot of comics are still being sold at newsstands. By the time we get to 88, with uh, the Green Arrow, that's being sold exclusively to direct market stores. So the right. tone is different. The style is different. Um, the idea that each issue might be someone's first issue is kind of gone away. We're seeing more contemporary storytelling techniques. So to actually mm-hmm. track that stuff uh, as it's going on, I think is really interesting. And yeah, Kate, I would love to go back and read some comics from the year we graduated or maybe like the year turned 12. Just kind of track that stuff through history to see yeah. how comics have evolved yeah. you know, so quickly in the past 40 years. Yeah, I, I definitely think we're going to revisit this. I'm probably you know, not with you two, unfortunately, um, but I think we might do another ish episode of this where we you know have other people pick up um, issues from when they were you know born and stuff. And we'll play around with that. Maybe we'll do high school. Maybe we'll do like when you were 12 or something like that, because, you know, across the board, mm-hmm. the age range on the show is a little bit uh it's it's all over the place a little bit so um it could be could be pretty fun so um thanks guys for for at least diving into this i know some of these were, were wild sure. and crazy but it was definitely a fun experiment uh you know you can follow us all on twitter and uh you can follow paul at oh hi paul you can follow me at mike rappin and you can follow the show at ircb podcast and on instagram as well we try to post things as uh as they are relevant as you know as i said at the top of the show This show and our many subscriber-only episodes are powered by fans like you on Patreon. Join now at patreon.com slash ircbpodcast. If you haven't already, please rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please join us on Discord at ircbpodcast.com slash Discord for all sorts of discussion, not just about comics, about everything. And please make sure to tell a friend or two uh, about the show and tell them to listen. Infinity Shred is the best band in the universe. They do all of our music. Xander is a great friend, a high fiver, and a great DM. Uh, he's someone that you know you can just count on to be the guy. You know, uh, I want to say thank you to Kate and Paul for being on this episode. Thank you to all the listeners out there and all the folks who donated to support all of the great causes that are out there that are helping people, um, specifically Black Americans, um, with the racial injustice that we're seeing in this country. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, do the right thing. Comics are good, and so are you. Thank you.